Let everybody stand up. The Lord be with you. O God of peace, who has taught us that in returning and rest we shall be saved, and in quietness and confidence shall be our strength, by your Holy Spirit lift us, we pray, to your presence, where we may be still and know that you are God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, well, welcome to catechesis. The first thing we do in catechesis is we pray, and then we sing. (laughs) Why do we sing? I'm just going to tell you why we sing. Um, We sing because... uh, um, we have to remember that uh, Christian knowledge is not uh, the, the end of the Christian life. Worship and glory is. Um, so we can often forget that if we just jump in and say, okay, our main thing this morning is to just study and learn and all of that. Um, have to pray, have to worship first. The other reason is that singing, uh, research shows us, actually builds empathy in us. Uh, so that when we are exposed to new things that are a little difficult to quite grasp and understand, just the fact that we sang a song opens us up to uh, what's being taught. Uh, So we're going to begin this morning with a hymn. All right, we'll begin. Praise my soul, the King of heaven, to his feet thy tribute bring. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, evermore his praises sing. Alleluia, alleluia, praise the everlasting King. Praise him for his grace and favor to his people in distress. Praise him still the same as ever, slow to chide and swift to bless. Alleluia, alleluia, glorious in his faithfulness. Father, thy kittens and spares us, well our feeble frame he knows. In his hand he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. Alleluia, alleluia, widely his mercy flows. Angels help us to adore him. Ye behold him face to face. Sun and moon bow down before him. Dwellers all in time and space. Please be seated. All right. The texts for catechesis, if you're new to this week, uh, are the Catechism, which is this black book, which uh, you should be able to get at the front table. Uh, We give these away. If you'd like to make a donation and you think it's worth it, then please do give a donation anywhere, you know, 
$10, $20, whatever you can spare. But we do realize that there are starving students among us who have no money and need, uh, need catechesis. So please do. Uh, we received without price. Give. We give without price. Uh, so there it is. Uh, well, I can't say that of myself. But um, the catechesis class is, uh, is something that we really want uh, new people to Christ Church and indeed everyone at Christ Church to have gone through at least once. Uh, the reason for that is that um, we have so many people coming from so many different churches, coming from so many different backgrounds, uh, some coming to us who have never been a Christian before. Uh, thank you. Uh, they've never uh, been uh, taught in a church like this before, uh, so we ask that they do that. Some are coming because they're just interested, like, what's this Anglicanism thing? What is it about? How do you do this? Uh, and, and they're hungry for uh, teaching on these subjects. Uh, so keep all that in mind. When we do catechesis, you'll note that every single, uh, if you flip through it, you'll see that there's a question and then there's an answer. And what we do is I ask the question and then you all respond with the answer and then we'll talk about uh, this. Please do, if you have any questions in the midst of this or you're confused uh, or you think, I don't know what's going on here, please raise your hand and say, I don't understand that. Could you explain that further? Because chances are, if you're confused, someone else is confused and it's my fault that you're confused because I should have gone through it more and I should have made it clearer and I should have uh, taken more time with it. Um, you'll note that I don't plan out which questions we're going to deal with in any given day. The reason is that I don't know what may be needed. Um, some of you may say, well, I want to spend more time on that. Please do raise your hand and say, let's spend more time on that, uh, because that's important. Uh, I will occasionally say, well, that's a rabbit trail. Uh, we can talk about that later. I'd rather not go into that this morning. Uh, but for the most part, questions are, uh, are entertained. I say that um, because one of the things in the ancient church that we often forget uh, is that the ancient church um, did not hide their teaching from anybody. There were things that they did not initiate talking about, but for the most part, they were distinct from other groups at the time who were called Gnostics, because Gnostics said, oh, we can't possibly tell you about that now because that's secret knowledge, and you have to pay for that, you have to put in your time for that, uh, and we don't do that. Um, but Christians and Orthodox Christians were always the ones who said, no, we will, answer your, we will answer your questions. We want to answer questions. So please do ask questions as they come. Uh, last week, we uh, talked about uh, the creeds. And, the, uh, and I know that for some of you, creeds are an entirely new thing. For some of you, they are not. Um, but creeds, uh, the three creeds which we Anglicans accept, which are the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed, um, are all discussed here. And you may remember that the purpose of the creeds is to declare and safeguard God's revealed truth as he has revealed it in Holy Scripture. Um, if you wonder, how did you memorize that? I say, because I've, been, I've spent all this time teaching it to my kids, so it's kind of ingrained in my memory. Uh, but to declare and safeguard uh, are two separate activities. Uh, the first is to state um, what God has done to state who he is as he's revealed in scripture. The other is to keep that clear uh, so that when uh, there are some who are tempted to wander down various roads uh, that we keep on track. Um, and today we're going to talk about the subject of Holy Scripture. So if you would turn to page 35, we'll begin. Okay. Uh, question 26. What is Holy Scripture? Holy Scripture is God's word written, given by the Holy Spirit through prophets and apostles as the revelation of God and his acts in human history, 
and is therefore the church's final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Now there's a lot to break down there, but the first part is that Holy Scripture is God's word written. Now what does that assume? That God speaks, right? That uh, God speaks to his people in words, uh, that he speaks to them uh, in a whole lot of ways actually, and that, uh, that that speaking is written down. Last week we talked about divine revelation, this understanding that God reveals himself to his people and then uh, and, and people actually can understand who he is and they, they uh, begin, of course, to write. We say that that, uh, that that God's word written in Holy Scripture is given by the Holy Spirit through prophets and apostles as the revelation of God and his acts in human history. We Christians do not believe that God is sort of remote from creation and only occasionally touches it. What do we believe instead? That's called deism, by the way. What do we hold? God is the God of history, and he's not only the God of history, but he is intimately involved in all of creation all the time. He is constantly um, uh, active in creation. Um, and, of course, that, that can sometimes be like, well, is, does that mean that God and creation are, are not distinct? And the answer is no, not at all. Uh, but it does mean this, um, that all things hold together in, in, in God. Um, as as uh, the Apostle Paul puts it uh, in his speech on the Areopagus in Athens, he says, what? In him we live and move and have our being. Um, and he's saying this unknown God that the, that the Greeks seem to know or seem to wonder about is this God of revelation who acts in human history. And, and by the way, that's an interesting thing because heretofore had not acted in Greek history uh, overtly yet, right? Uh, but was now acting in the history of that people in an overt way. Um, and is therefore... This revelation of God in human history uh, means that the writings of the apostles, uh, these inspired writings of the apostles and prophets, which we'll talk more about later, is therefore the church's final authority in all matters of faith and practice. So we Anglicans teach this very, very, very firmly, um, that these scriptures are the final authority in the church. Now, are human beings going to decide matters based on Holy Scripture? Absolutely. Um, we are not uh, a church in which people say, well, I read my Bible and I decided this is, th this is true, right? Um, we do believe in authority and we do believe that authority is exercised, but authority always turns to Scripture as the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Um, uh, we'll say more about this, but uh, Anglicanism tends to say something like this that the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments contain all things, they are the Word of God, first of all, and they contain all things necessary to salvation. Everybody who's ordained, so that means me and Father Nicholas, and actually I watched Father Nicholas do it just a few months ago, uh, you, have to, you have to state emphatically that you do believe the Holy Scriptures uh, to be the Word of God and to contain all things necessary to salvation. Now, um, are there things that you can believe which are not contained in the Holy Scripture? Yes, <laughs> but here's the deal. If it's not contained in the Holy Scripture, I can't be holding your hand as you die and say, now, uh, Joe, you must believe, you, mu you must believe uh, in, let me say something like this, uh, you must believe in, 
in, uh, and I can't even think of anything. Well, see, there it is. That's your answer. <laughs> but there are various things which people are free to believe or not believe. Uh, but if it's in Scripture, you're, you're required to believe it as a matter of salvation. Um, let's, let's do the easy question first. What books are contained in Holy Scripture? The 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament form the whole of Holy Scripture, which is also called the Bible and the canon. Canon simply means list or rule. Um, and the canon is formed, uh, first for the Old Testament, second for the, for the New Testament. It's formed through uh, that early history of the church. There was some wrangling about certain books. Um, I want to say just a little bit about that. Um, we, we know that um, most of the New Testament, if not all of it, was written by the end of the first century. Um, we can actually date some of the New Testament to the 50s, roundabout, 54, something like 1 Thessalonians, definitely about 54, 55 AD. Um, we can also date certain texts to a little bit later, so the Gospel of John in certain portions, Revelation in certain portions goes to about the 90s, uh, but it's really hard uh, for scholars to claim that, first, that certain texts were written past the first century. The other portion of this that's really important is that there were other texts which were, which were available in the first century, but first of all, they didn't claim apostolic origin, uh, so that, that becomes an issue. There's some texts that uh, don't claim to be apostolic at all. There are certain texts which virtually disappear uh, after the first and second centuries, like the Didache, so they don't wind up in Scripture. There are other texts uh, where, if you can imagine this, um, say you are sitting in the church office one day and the Romans come around and they say, we want to see all your holy books. What do you give them? Yeah, I would say, like, yeah, here, have the prayer of Jabez, right? <laughs> this was popular several years ago. Not anymore. Uh, you can have that, right? Um, here, take this, take that. But the, the things that are holy and that are, um, that are important, what do we do with them? We sock them away. Other texts uh, are extant throughout the world at, those at that time. Uh, they're, in the, in the best sense of the word, Catholic texts. They're universal. Every church has them. They have them in their library. What, and that contributes to the canon. So all of this is to say that the canon uh, sits and, in a sense, ferments in, the, in those early years. Um, go ahead. Right. Right. So there, are, um, we, we're going to get to that in part of this catechism. But uh, I will say just just briefly that um, the church actually has a has a historic and consensual reading of, of various texts. Um, what I mean by that is that um, there are texts in which Christians have understood them to mean certain things through the centuries. And so that's important. The other thing is that uh, there are canonical readings as well, meaning that, uh, that how we set up, so for instance, um, on marriage, right? The, the canonical history of marriage in, in the church is to avoid uh, and indeed to uh, make it so that people cannot contract second marriages. Um, and we see that in scripture, do we not? We, uh, we do. Um, now, of course, in the Old Testament, there are different things going on, right? But we can sort of say, okay, well, there's a reason that changes, right? We see certainly the teachings of Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 and all kinds of other things, and we say, okay, well, um, it's clear enough that that's the, that's the reading which ancient Christians had. Uh, polygamy is avoided, right? 
Um, that would be an example of a canonical reading, right? That, uh, that and not only that, but, uh, but we now have, so this is great too, we have whole sets of canon that I abide by as a priest, right? So get this, if, uh, let me put it this way, I'm not going to pick on anybody. If one of you said, you know, I'm really happy being married to so-and-so, I think I'd like to have another wife. Um, and I, try, I said, you know, you're right. Let's go do that. Let's make that happen. Uh, I would definitely, within a week, be tried for canonical problems, right? I would probably be tossed out on my ear unless I just denied it outright um, because there are canonical processes, right? I would be before an ecclesiastical trial court within the month, probably, probably within the week. They'd convene it very quickly, um, and I'd be out on my ear, right? Uh, and, and the reason is that we have canons which, which state very clearly that marriage is between one man and one woman. Absolutely. It's stated not only in diocesan canons, but in the ACNA canons, um, and so that's just a, that's an example of a canonical reading, right? Um, so that gives you some, some basis for understanding that. Um, I think on things like slavery, right, we don't have to write out and out writing canon that uh, you're not allowed as a member of our church to own slaves, right? Because you're not allowed as a person living in the United States of America to own slaves. <laughs> um, and so that's sort of covered by civil law. In addition to that, um, we can say things like uh, that... Um, uh, well, especially within, within terms of Anglicanism. I mean, Anglicans have opposed slavery vehemently from uh, the early early 19th century um, and, have, and have sought to dismantle it around the world. So there's your kind of uh, example, which is that, yes, Scripture seems to be, um, seems to have a lot of uh, wiggle room, right, that we wouldn't allow, right? To, and I'm probably going way too deep, but uh, you think about Paul's letter to Philemon where Paul... Uh, advocates for Philemon, who, uh, for Philemon to release this slave, Onesimus. Um, you know, uh, my letter would not be so kindly written, right? <laughs> but for Paul living in the first century, it's kind of like, well, you know, this is just a reality that we live with, and certainly you can own slaves under Roman law and all of that. So there's a different world going on, um, and I think that's something we just have to be aware of. Um, so yeah, that, that's the most basic answer. I think there are a lot of ways that we can go through it. For it. Yes. Yep. Well, there's an answer given to that, and I don't want to jump forward too far. Question 37 asks this question, what other books does the church acknowledge? The canon of Holy Scripture contains all things necessary to salvation. The 14 books of the Apocrypha may be read for example of life and instruction of manners, but not to establish any doctrine. Um, so uh, we're actually going to read the Apocrypha this morning. We're going to read from Ecclesiasticus. Um, and uh, wh why are we going to do that? Because it's, see, this is the hard part for people. It's like, because it's in the Bible, okay? Like, um, you know, uh, when the King James Bible, which was the first authorized version of the Bible in the Church of England, was produced, um, they included in it the Apocrypha. Why? Well, the short answer is because the Apocrypha is in the Bible, okay? It's always been in the collection of texts that we call the Bible. In fact, James, uh, in his proclamation of this text, uh, said, if, anyone, if any printer should go print it without the Apocrypha, they are to be beheaded. Um, now, that seems a little extreme, but, but I want to I say it clearly that uh, the, answer, the answer is clearly that this text is to be read in the church. Now, 
do we take it to be the word of God? I would say not in the same way as the other texts, right? And there, there's your answer. So that's, a, that's actually a very typically Anglican answer. Uh, we, we're, we're not going to say don't print them, and we're certainly not going to say don't read them, but we're absolutely going to say, well, they're not Scripture in the same way that the rest of the canon is, is Scripture. So does that help? I think in the Roman Catholic Church, those are called deuterocanonical texts, which means that it's a second canon, which means that it's a part of the canon. Um, in Anglicanism, we don't say it's a part of the canon, we just say it's a part of the Bible. Um, and, and that's a little bit of a, of, a, of a difference there. So I hope that's helpful. Um, okay, go ahead, Ben. Well, you remember that um, in, the, in the early years, we talked a little bit about this last week, that the texts were very rarely, if ever, bound together in one continuous Bible. Um, so uh, the, well, the papyrologists in here can help me out with this, but the, the reality of it is that we don't see complete texts in the New Testament emerge until the fourth, fifth century. Um, we might see them a little bit earlier than that, but the, the reality of it is that um, what came to be bound together from the earliest dates uh, was copy of the Old Testament, copy of the New Testament, and the Apocrypha bound together. Um, and so that's been, a, that's been the case for a long, long time. Um, in fact, and I think this is really important, uh, I, b I believe it was the John Nelson Darby Bible in Ireland that was the first Bible uh, to be printed without the Apocrypha in as many centuries. So uh, it's simply to say that what we have in a Bible uh, in has classically included those texts. Um, what in, what's in our Bible as Anglicans, which has classically been the King James text and all other texts which have the same books, um, is, is that. So uh, the Bible is, those, is that binding of, well, what could easily be called the book of books. Does that make sense? So I think that's important to state. Um, the other thing, too, to say, and this was the point about lectionaries, is that um, what we read in church is from the Bible, right? So you just simply say, um, we have it in our readings. We read it regularly. We're going to read it today. Um, what, that, what that should state is that it should be bound up with those other texts. Now, are they, as, are they authoritative in the same way that the other texts are? No, but they're bound up in it. I hope, that, I, hope that, I hope that's helpful. I mean, today, you're hard-pressed to find a Bible with the Apocrypha printed in, it, printed in it at all, right? It's one of my main beefs with Crossway right now is, can you please print an ESV with the Apocrypha, please? <laughs> um, they won't do it. Uh, it's just so hard to do because people uh, in America, especially the market, just people don't want Apocrypha bound up with their Bibles, and they haven't for the last 140 years uh, because it's just the way that they get printed. Um, Anyway, there it is. Um, and of course, that law passed by, well, that decree passed by, by John uh, King James is uh, no longer in effect. So, Or at least if it is, they don't follow it because that would make a mess. Okay, let's keep moving. Um, what is in the Old Testament? The Old Testament contains the record of God's creation of all things, mankind's original disobedience, God's calling of Israel to be his people, God's law, God's wisdom, God's saving deeds, and the teaching of God's prophets. The Old Testament points to Christ, revealing God's intention to redeem and reconcile the world through Christ. Okay, there's a lot going on in there. The Old Testament contains the record, right? Um, record means this, simply. Um, there is a recording of the acts, and that is what we have in Scripture. There's certainly the recording not only of the acts, but also of his speaking. Um, we can read of first, and you know this. What's the very first verse of the Old Testament? 
in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. And, and, uh, and, and, and so we see that the creation is, is talked about. We also see in chapter 3 that we see of mankind's original disobedience, uh, God's calling of Israel to be his people. So we're going in very basic terms, but this is what's contained in the Old Testament. We also end here by saying that the, the Old Testament points, and I'm going to say more about this in the, in the near future, the Old Testament points to Christ, revealing God's intention to redeem and reconcile the world through Christ. Um, many people today are opposed to this reading of the Old Testament. They say, well, that's a very ingenious way uh, to, draw the, 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 uh, to draw Christianity out of the Old Testament. Um, some will go so far as to say, well, that's anti-Semitic. Uh, some will go so far as to say, uh, we don't believe in any kind of mystical thing happening in Scripture at all. That doesn't happen. God doesn't speak to his people. Well, and I'm going to say this clearly. If you don't believe God speaks to his people, what are you doing messing around worrying about the Old Testament? Mm-hmm. Right? It, it doesn't make sense. Uh, so there, there have been some uh, ostensibly Christian scholars who have said things like, well, we, we ought not impose Christ upon the Old Testament. Well, I think that's the wrong way to look at it. Um, the right way to look at it is, let's, let's find him there. Right? Let's not impose him there. Let's find him there. That's what the fathers did. Right? That's patristic interpretation. Right? You're constantly seeking Christ in the Old Testament. I'm going to say more about that here soon. Um, and in a lot of ways, we're going to talk about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. What is the New Testament? The New Testament contains the record of Jesus Christ's birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension, the church's early ministry, the teaching of the apostles, and the revelation of Christ's coming kingdom. Does that sound familiar, given what we talked about last week? Yeah, see, there it is. It's, it's basically that the content of the Apostles' Creed is where? It's in the New Testament, right? That's the whole point. It declares and safeguards God's revealed truth, right? Okay, question 30. How are the Old and New Testaments related to each other? The Old Testament is to be read in the light of Christ, incarnate, crucified, and risen. And the New Testament is to be read in light of God's revelation to Israel. As St. Augustine says, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. Do you love that? That's a wonderful phrase. Uh, it's, it's classic Augustine, right? Because what St. Augustine's point is, it, he is constantly stating, uh, as he preaches through the Old Testament, um, this, this idea of, let us find Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, right? Um, so, for instance, and, and Paul does this too, does he not? Uh, the letter to the Hebrews does this. Um, constantly finding Jesus in the Old Testament. The supernatural rock in the Exodus. Remember this? What happens? What does the rock do? Well, Moses strikes the rock, yes, and what happens? Water comes out of it. Oh, my goodness. And, and uh, Paul says, well, there he is. That's Jesus right there in the rock, right? He's the rock. The rock was Christ. Uh, and, and what does he look at? Well, he's, he's thinking about the crucifixion, right? The spear in the side. Uh, water flowing out, not water, but not water only, but blood as well. And, and he's speaking about how this is Christ that we're finding in the Old Testament. Right? Uh, you can think about this in a huge number of ways. Um, here's an example. Uh, think about manna coming down from heaven, bread from heaven, right? Would you not say that Jesus, and Jesus himself finds himself in the Old Testament? Absolutely. He says, I am the bread of life. Um, he's speaking about 
uh, about bread in the wilderness and all of this uh, in John chapter 6. And this is, this is very, 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 uh, very important. Um, now, what do we, how do we, we don't talk about this in the catechism, but uh, we call these, in fact, uh, this, is, this is a reference to typology. Um, we have both the type and the antitype. So if you think about the supernatural rock, that's the type. And the antitype is Jesus, okay? So you connect these together. I'm constantly, constantly finding these, 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 uh, these emphases. Um, oh, I'll give you another one. Um, King David is being uh, attacked by his wayward son Absalom, yes? This wayward son who is so uh, awful and who opposes him and uh, raises a rebellion against David. Do you know how the story ends? That part of the story anyway? Yeah, Absalom is riding along and he gets caught up in a tree and one of David's men finds him in the tree. He's still alive. And what happens? He spears him to death. Now, what should we think about that as we read that text? We should think, my goodness, that sounds familiar. Who else hung on a tree? Jesus. Was he speared? Yes. Was he already dead? Yes. Uh, but was he God's son? Yes. Is he the future king? Yes. Uh, you, can, you can connect all this together, right? He's a son of David, right? He, now, he's not wayward, but he's taken on waywardness, right? Um, and we can think of Paul. Uh, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, yes? You see, this is all, this is all to be found there. Um, I would say this as well. One of the things that makes reading the Old Testament so darn boring, when you start off and you say, I'm going to read the Bible from cover to cover, is that you have to read the New Testament first. Right? Read the New Testament first and then go back and read. And in fact, I would say this too. You should really be reading little bits all together, right? Read the Old Testament and read the New Testament. Uh, and there's a great way to do this, which is provide for an Anglicanism. It's called the daily office, right? You, you have a whole list of texts in the back of a prayer book, which you can read on a daily basis. And it actually provides you some way, sometimes in explicit ways, these connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, sometimes on Sundays you'll see that those connections in the text as well, will you not? Um, there are some wonderful examples in the lectionary of how we get, in fact, the lectionary was made to do this, to connect the Old Testament to the New. Okay? So I want to say that very, very strongly. The New Testament is to be read in light of God's revelation to Israel. Um, and this, this is also a, a rather important thing. We tend to get disconnected in our understanding of the New Testament from uh, the Old Testament. And we tend to have a Christianity which is detached from uh, what God has been revealing to his people from the very beginning. Um, and, uh, and Christianity sort of becomes detached from uh, that, uh, that original revelation of God. That's, that's a real problem, okay? Uh, and in fact, uh, well, you've probably thought this, right, in your own mind. You've probably thought things like, Oh, well, it seems like the God of the, that's described in the New Testament is very different from the God of the Old Testament. Maybe they're not the same, right? And uh, you, can be, you can be forgiven for this. Very bright people have done this in the past. <laughs> uh, but but uh, there, there actually is an ancient heresy called Marcionism, arriving with Marcion, who says, no, 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 we're going we're gonna to edit the New Testament so that it takes all reference to the Old Testament out. God's different, changes mind, whatever it is, totally different. There's also a whole body of... Uh, interesting theology, I'll put it that way, that teaches that God is sort of in this process, and he's kind of changing over time and growing and maturing. 
right? Understanding the relationship between the Old Testament and the New preserves you from this. Um, you can even see how in the law, as brutal as it can often be, is, is, uh, is concealed the law of love. Can you not? Um, seriously, read that. Read it in depth and try to understand it from that perspective. Um, seek Christ in the Old Testament and you will find. You will find again and again and again and again and again. Okay? Of course, Jesus himself says this, yes? That the scriptures testify about me, he says. Um, this is very important to see. Okay, shall we move on? Okay. What does it mean that, the, that Holy Scripture is inspired? Holy Scripture is God-breathed. For the biblical authors wrote under the guidance of God's Holy Spirit to record God's word. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16, which let's actually open that up. Would somebody read that out loud? Can I get a volunteer? Cody, you have it? Okay. Does anybody else have it? Do we need to have a reminder to bring Bibles? Go ahead, Bert. <laughs> All scripture, your, your translation says, breathed out by God. Okay? This is that meaning of that word inspired. Um, we actually, we know this regularly because we use, we, we use words like expired. Do you know what expired means? It actually means breathed out as in breathed out its last. Yes, it's dead. Okay? Uh, um, inspired means what? It's breathed in, breathed into. Um, and of course, this, we see this throughout Scripture, do we not? How does man become a living being? God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and we read, and he became a living being. Same thing with Eve. Eve is formed, and God breathes into, into the rib, apparently, uh, and, and, and there we go, again, a living being. Um, this is one of those uh, really kind of amazing things. Um, uh, but this word... Um, uh, for spirit, you know, even just saying it gives you that sense, doesn't it? Right? Which is where we get all kinds of words, right? Um, but I think about, uh, I, I like to work with tools, especially because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a guy and I like to, like, have my pneumatic tools, right? Do you know what the word pneuma means? Spirit, breath. Uh, and how are those tools driven? By the air, right? Uh, you go to the dentist. How's that drill work? Have you ever heard it? it? It blows air through the tool, and it goes very, very, very fast, and it's very powerful. Um, this is to say that, that uh, people have understood this spirit to mean this, to mean this invisible uh, force. Um, and of course, who do we know this is? The Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit speaks uh, to the authors uh, and, and guides them uh, to record God's word, uh, which, is, which is extremely important uh, to, to say. What does it mean that the Bible is the word of God? Because the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, it is rightly called the word of God written. God is revealed in his mighty works and in the incarnation of our Lord, but his works and his will 
are made known to us through the inspired words of Scripture. God has spoken through the prophets and continues to speak through the Bible today. This is incredibly important to grasp. Scripture is not only uh, true for the first century, yes, but is true for what? All centuries, every century. Um, and because the scripture, because scripture is inspired, um, we call it the word of God written. Now, keep this in mind. Who also is called the word of God? Jesus Christ, right? Read uh, John chapter 1, and you get this very clearly, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Um, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Um, and it goes on for, well, a good, the prologue is 14 verses. They're wonderful. Uh, keep this in mind, that uh, the, the revealing of the word of God made, made flesh um, is proclaimed by a prophet, by the name of whom? John the Baptist, the last of the prophets. So there's, there's this constant connection between the work of the prophets and the word of God, especially in Jesus Christ. Um, why is Jesus Christ, here's the question, why is Jesus Christ called the word of God? The fullness of God's revelation is found in Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, who not only fulfills the scriptures, but is himself God's word, the living expression of God's mind. The scriptures testify about him, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Therefore, ignorance of the Scriptures is ignorance of Christ. This is a wonderful line from uh, St. Jerome. Uh, St. Jerome, does anyone know what he did in his connection with, uh, with canonical history? Somebody? <laughs> yeah. Translated the whole Bible into Latin by himself, uh, which is why if you are a classic scholar, Jerome should be your hero, right? He should just be like, you know, uh, a god among men. Of course, he, he is uh, impressive, um, and, and I'd encourage you to read more about him, but his, his, his great, I mean, this great line is very true. Ignorance of the scriptures is ignorance of Christ. Um, I would say one of the issues that we have today is that we have a lot of people who read scripture a lot, right? The Barna survey on youth and the Bible came out just this past week, and it's clear as ever that young people are reading the Bible constantly. The issue is that they can't speak about what it contains, uh, and, and it's very difficult because there's not sustained teaching on scripture. It's, it's this prevailing American attitude that, uh, oh, we just, just go read it and you'll understand it. Well, how's that work? Well, even scripture says that doesn't work, right? Uh, think, about, uh, think about the Ethiopian eunuch, for instance, in uh, Acts chapter, was it seven, six? Uh, can he understand what's in the scriptures on his own? No, in fact, he says that. How can I understand it unless there's someone here to help me, guide me, all of that? Um, he understands that there's a need for someone to come alongside him and read with him and teach him. Um, <clears throat> I will say this very, very clearly. Um, we... Uh, we come to know uh, the word of God written not in abstraction by ourselves, but reading scripture in the body of Christ, a living body of the church, the living body of Christ, the church. Um, this is why uh, to read scripture in abstraction from that living body is so disastrous. And I would say that's really the ultimate theological issue going on today, which is that people are reading scripture in abstraction from the church. Um, and that's where we get to this next one. So there was a nice segue to question 34. How should Holy Scripture be interpreted? 
Just as Holy Scripture was not given through private interpretation of things, so it must also be translated, read, preached, taught, and obeyed in its plain and canonical sense, respectful of the church's historic and consensual reading of it. I'm going to break this down a little bit. Scripture has to be translated. Why does it have to be translated? Well, for some of us to read it, right? There are some of you here I know who can sit there with your Greek New Testament and be absolutely fine, and even your Hebrew Old Testament and be fine, uh, which drives me crazy because Hebrew is tough for me. Okay, uh, but, but it's, it's, this, it's this struggle that, uh, that we have to say, which is that the, the scriptures have to be translated, and they have to be translated faithfully. Um, which is an incredibly important task. And so uh, if you have a Bible in your hands right now, that is a translation, right? Sometimes it's a translation of a translation. Uh, if it's a good copy, uh, it's translated from the text, okay? Um, we also have to be careful to understand that um, there is no such thing, uh, at least that we have in our possession, of original autographs of what Paul wrote with his own hand or that his amanuensis wrote with his, with his hand. We don't have that. If we did, I would be so happy, but we don't have it. What we have instead is we have fragments in the New Testament which are compiled into uh, what we often call uh, the received text. And that is translated, and that is what you have in your hands as the New Testament. Okay? Uh, so all of that is a very important task. Uh, it should remind us of the need to uh, quite get that. Uh, good quality translations of the New Testament will have various textual variants in the, in the notes, saying some authorities have this, some authorities have that. Uh, it's very important that we see that. Um, although you shouldn't freak out because they're not major differences, okay? They're, they're very minor uh, and sometimes very interesting to read about. Um, scripture must be read in its plain and canonical sense. Um, <clears throat> I should note as well, according to Augustine, the first sense with which we read Scripture is the literal sense, okay? Uh, that is to say that, uh, now, there's a big difference between the literal sense and the literalistic sense, Okay, let's just make that clear. Uh, the literal sense means, what do the words say? Got it? Okay, that's pretty simple. Uh, that's without going into allegory. It's without going into, did this actually happen or not? It's just to say, what do the words say? That's the first meaning of scripture. Um, so we are very clear to, to hold on to that plain sense. And I'm gonna say a little bit more about plain. They're also to be preached in the plain sense of the text. So one of the tasks that, that I have and the other clergy have as preaching this word uh, on a regular basis is to preach it in the plainest way possible. Um, that means don't get wrapped up in, uh, in um, hypotheses that may or may not be the case. Don't get wrapped up in, well, some people say this and some people say that. Just look at the plain text of Scripture. That's where power in preaching actually comes from. It's from uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in allowing us to proclaim what Scripture says. Scripture must also be taught. Do you agree with that? Okay, good. We've got Bible studies going on. You can do that next year. Uh, Bible studies are, are uh, an incredibly important thing. And it must also be obeyed in its plain sense. Um, now, there are all kinds of ongoing contemporary debates about the plain sense of Scripture. And let me just put it to you this way. If a reading becomes unbelievably complicated um, and departs from a historic reading, you're probably on the wrong page. Um, it's pretty simple. It's, it's, it's just not complicated, okay? Um, and that is what we mean by the plain and canonical sense, okay? Um, I should also note that we, one of the things we said last week, the, the creeds lay out for us that canonical rule, 
Um, that's in fact one of, the, one of the names for the Apostles' Creed is the regula fide, meaning the rule of faith. Um, the reason I say this is that readings of scripture which depart from that rule, which means to depart from a, a canonical sense, always go awry. Um, so for instance, you're reading along and you say, hmm, uh, well, have a, conversation with a Je- have a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness and you'll see this happen, right? Because they'll say, they'll, they'll take apart certain texts and they'll say, yeah, I mean, I, I read this in Philippians, you know, uh, firstborn of all creation seems to indicate that Jesus Christ was created. Does it not? That's only true if you depart from the canonical sense of Scripture, right? What the canonical sense is this. Well, it doesn't mean born and it doesn't mean created. What it actually means is that he's the heir of all creation. He has pride of place. He is the first. Um, it doesn't mean created. Does that, is that sinking in with you a little bit? Uh, so that uh, to depart from that canonical and indeed the historic sense is always, always, always off base. Um, we read also respectful of the church's historical, historic and consensual reading. Now, historic refers to this. That there have been readings which have readings of scripture which have been in place for a long, long time. They have an incredible history uh, to read texts in this way. Uh, we have to be mindful of that. Consensual refers to another thing that happens, which is this. I read the text, and I look back, and I find, oh my goodness, there are all these others who have read the text in a very similar way. In fact, sometimes exactly the same way. That should, that should make me very, uh, very happy with myself, uh, <laughs> indeed, because I'm saying, well, I'm reading it the same way they are. Um, and indeed, there is this consensual reading. We're also referring here to the fact that um, there is such a phenomenon in the church's history, which we often call uh, the consensus of the faithful. And that means that uh, faithful Christians reading scripture for many, many, many centuries in this process of consenting to that reading have come to the same conclusions. Okay? To depart from that consensual reading uh, is usually, is usually not, not just subtle, but often overt uh, as a form of, of departure from the church's reading, um, which presents major issues, does it not? I mean, here's the issue. You say, well, you know, I don't read it that way. I, I'm going to read it in this totally novel way, which is not historically the case and isn't consensually the case. Well, you're off on your own, aren't you? Um, and you're not reading it as a part of the body of Christ, which, by the way, is the only way to read Scripture. Okay? And, and you're also, uh, you are making something up. Um, and, of course, in Scripture as well, I think this is important to say, nobody... And for Anglicans, this is absolutely the case. Nobody is their own personal magisterium. Nobody. By that I mean teaching authority. Nobody is that. Um, and so consent in the reading of Scripture is absolutely paramount. We consent to one another. We consent not only to one another now, living today, but throughout history and to, to those Christians who've come before us. Okay, let's, let's wrap this up. I think we've got, we got a little bit of time. Okay. How should belief in God, uh, in the God of the Bible, affect your life? As I prayerfully learn Holy Scripture, I should expect the Holy Spirit to use it to teach, rebuke, correct, and train me in the righteousness that God desires. This nourishes my soul towards the service of God and my neighbor. Okay. Um, this also refers to 2 Timothy 3.16, which we've referenced before. I should expect, when I read Scripture that the Holy Spirit will use it. Okay, now, 
If you heard something like that before, you should, you, you should have, but if you haven't, that's okay. Uh, the Holy Spirit uses Scripture uh, to, uh, to build in us uh, those things that God desires, uh, to teach us, uh, to rebuke us, yes? I mean, if you don't read Holy Scripture and think, man, that hurts today, that's an ouch today, um, keep reading. You'll find something that will, that will sting you, and it should. It should call you to a new life. Scripture should correct us. Um, this can often be in a very basic sense. It could be in a moral sense. But sometimes we're reading, we say, you know, I always thought that it was this way, but apparently it's not. Yes? Um, I always find this reading with people about, um, for instance, subjects like uh, the resurrection of the dead, right? We Americans have this idea that you, when you die, you sort of uh, float up into the ether and you're absorbed up into the uh, cloud space where we play harps and, uh, and tell jokes and participate in uh, far side cartoons. Um, well, you know, to say that's not the case is, is putting it simply. Uh, but, but no, we believe in the resurrection of the body. We believe that our bodies will be raised on the last day. Now, I've often read scripture with people, and they're like, no, that's not it at all. That's not what I grew up knowing. Well, here's an example. Scripture is correcting you, <laughs> and it's very important that it do that. Um, I don't mean to open a can of worms there. I'm just telling you the way it is. Um, and to train me, right? Scripture puts prime emphasis on this, this, this understanding of, of ascesis, um, which is the, uh, the understanding that uh, scripture should build in us this, this work of um, of having what, what is in us that is not wholly subsumed but is heavenly fire which reigns in Scripture to burn up in us that which is not pure. Um, and the daily reading of Scripture does this. It definitely does. Um, and again, this nourishes my soul. Um, what is it that Jesus says in response to one of the temptations of Satan? Man shall not live by what? bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Um, he knows this because uh, he, as a person, is eternally nourished by the word of God, right? Um, and this is, this is absolutely essential to catch. We need to be a people who are nourished uh, by the word of God. That means daily reading of scripture. Um, and we're nourished towards not only serving God, but also serving our neighbor. Um, I think there's this idea, and this is, this is particularly interesting that's happening right now, but there's this idea, you know, if we could all just kind of get past uh, doctrine and all get sort of past this old scripture bit, then we could love our neighbor better, uh, that we could just all put our heads together and we could be happy like do-gooders and not have to worry about doctrine. Okay, let me lay something out very clearly for you. The people who have cared most about their neighbor in history have cared a great deal about scripture, have cared a great deal about doctrine because it sets them on a very firm course, does it not? I mean, it sets them towards understanding truly who their neighbor is, a person made in the image of God, who is an object of redemption, um, and, and builds in us uh, that love of neighbor. So I want to say that clearly, that um, we often think, oh, well, you know, you don't have to read scripture to understand these things. We all sort of understand that human beings have a dignity. Do we really? Um, the ongoing philosophical debates going on right now is actually centered on, is the language of dignity helpful or not? Um, no. Uh, Christians, are re Christians regularly reading scripture will, have no, uh, will, have, will not have much concern about that uh, in terms of whether or not that's true, because we'll know it is. 
Is there a question? Yes, so um, Anglicanism holds some really important things about this, and I'm, I'm going to say this really quickly. Um, the first is that uh, private devotion is an uh, accessory to liturgical prayer. Okay? Um, so when we read the daily office as a crew, as a group together, which I, I love this. I mean, there's a group of us that pray morning prayer every day of the week, Monday through Friday, and it's wonderful. It's been one of the best things that's happened here, um, and it's just absolutely amazing. Um, if that was all I did, that would be a lot, but I don't think it would be enough, right? I need to be reading scripture myself. I think it's to see that the churches, so that, that our private reading of scripture is rooted in the life of a, of a reading church that reads scripture together. Um, to see that even uh, on Sundays, our reading of scripture during the week is rooted in the fact that we read it with the church on Sunday morning, and it was proclaimed, uh, and the creeds were, were read. This is all very important. Um, I think otherwise we get this false sense of imbalance that I read my Bible at night and it tells me what's true, right? Um, well, is that true? Yes, but only within the body of the church. Um, so I want to balance that out and say, yes, there's room for private reading of Scripture. Absolutely. Uh, but we must read, um, we must read uh, with the body. Now, one more thing about how that, how that works. Um, one of the ways that you can read the daily office is to read it alone, right? To read those texts on your own, knowing that at the exact same moment, everybody else is reading the same text at the same time. So you actually participate in the reading of scripture with the church on your own as well. So very often Jeff Wallace will be like, how about those readings this morning? I'll say, man, how about those readings? See, because we've been reading the same text every morning. Uh, and things will strike him that strike me, and we have this kind of moment of like, wow, that was amazing. So we're reading them, dip, we're reading them separately, but we're reading them together. And I think that's a really important, an important gift. So um, with that, I must close. We've got to get started.